Welcome to Engage 360, Denver Seminary's podcast. Join us as we explore the redemptive power of the gospel and the life-changing truth of scripture at work in our culture today. Hi friends, welcome to Engage 360. Coming to you from Denver Seminary, we are very grateful that you've chosen to spend a little bit of time with us. And for our conversation in this episode, we are privileged to have as our guest, uh, Bonnie Christian. Uh, Bonnie is the editorial director of Ideas and Books at Christianity Today. She is a longtime journalist who has written for a long time for Christianity Today. She's also written for USA Today and Time and, uh, and other periodicals as well. Uh, she is the author of A Flexible Faith, Rethinking What It Means to Follow Jesus Today. Uh, but her 2022 book, Untrustworthy, is the subject of our conversation today. Bonnie, welcome. We're glad to have you with us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. We're also joined by our president again, Dr. Mark Young. Mark, good to have you here. Thanks, Don. Uh, Bonnie's basic concern in this book, Untrustworthy, is a crisis that affects, I think, just about everybody, even if they don't have language for it or don't know how much it's affecting them, but it's what we might call academically and what Bonnie calls an epistemic crisis. That is, it's a knowledge crisis that's undermining our ability to gain knowledge, to discern knowledge claims, and to act well on the basis of those knowledge claims. And this is really not just an academic or a philosophical conversation. It's in the face of every person who listens to messages about what's going on in the world, what we should think about that, and how we should act on that. Uh, now, you may already have intuited that the notion of fake news would be at the heart of a conversation like this, and Bonnie tackles that notion uh, head on. But uh, Bonnie, again, thanks for being with us, and I'd love for you first maybe to give us a bit of a flyover of this knowledge crisis and, and how you think it's impacting us, and then we can kind of branch out from there. Sure. Yeah. So as you said, I think many people may not have the words for this, but it's a very common experience as I've been, uh, you know, promoting this book in various venues. I've, I've never described it and have someone say, oh, I don't really, that doesn't really happen to me. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. Um, and so it's it's that experience that I, I think we increasingly feel of, of being just unsure, feeling unmoored, being uncertain about what is trustworthy, what is knowable. Um, and this is an experience that I think we encounter especially, but not exclusively online, um, and especially, but again, not exclusively with political media. And so it's, it's just that, that question where you're, you're being deluged with content, most of us are, especially those of us who have smartphones, which increasingly is all of us, um, being deluged with information all day long, day in and day out. There is so much of it. You do not have the knowledge or expertise to evaluate it on a case-by-case basis because no one could. Uh, and so you're just sort of left with, do I believe this? Do I accept this? What is happening? And, and how am I to, to sort through all this and come to you know, reliable conclusions, come to believe true things and not false things? Yeah, I really appreciated the fact that in your book, you tell stories about friends and others who have faced crises of knowing and sometimes made decisions that seemed almost irrational based on what they had come to believe. Mm -hmm. as, you, as you wrote the book, did you find yourself attempting to address them or was your desire to reach more of us? In other words, those of us to prevent us from falling into that trap. Some of both. I mean, I, I think there's 
an extent to which uh, often writing this kind of book, I think you're always sort of writing to, to your loved ones, right, that, that you think would would be um, perhaps helped by what you have to say, though, of course, whether you can actually say these things in, in the context of the real relationship is another question. Um, so it's not that I didn't have them in mind, but I, I do think that there's a, a sense in which the subtitle of the book is The Knowledge Crisis Breaking Our Brains, Polluting Our Politics, and Corrupting Christian Community. And on that first piece, the idea of having a, a brain that's been broken by our media consumption habits and by the way we encounter information. In some cases, if your brain is, is really broken, and, and my brain's a little broken, I think anyone who, who's engaging in this world, our brains are a little bit broken. But if your brain gets really broken, you might be in a space, at least for a while, where reading a book like this would not be very helpful to you because you're not willing to consider that there's something wrong with how you're consuming media. And so in that sense, you know, while I, I certainly wouldn't object to someone in that space reading it, I think for a lot of us, it is more of a or hopefully should be a more preventive activity where before we get in too deep, we are deliberately thinking about how we engage in this world um, and hopefully, you know, don't get a completely broken brain. Yeah. You use the phrase consuming media. I want us just to jump there if we can, because that tends to be the center plate, the place where a lot of this mm -hmm. conversation occurs. What are some healthy habits of consuming media that you would recommend? I know at the end of the book, you have some very practical suggestions. Mm -hmm. Which which ones would you highlight for us and for those who are consuming media regularly? Yeah, I mean, a lot of it, and I understand this is strange uh, for, a, for a journalist, but a lot of it comes down to consuming less. Um, the reality is that most of us, especially those who uh, do not perhaps have the wisdom to not do this for a living, do not need to be uh, as informed about the news as we, we think that we do. Um, the idea that you would always be up on everything that's happening in the world, that that would be a virtue. Uh, I would question that and say that for most of us, that's not something that we, we need to do and that it's, while it's not necessarily a bad thing, there's a very real chance that it is distracting us from other better ways that we could be using our time. And so to that end, I think the, the number one thing that I go to is if, if the news is of interest to you, if this is something that you actually like doing. And for many people, it's not. And so for those people, I would say, you know, con consider just not reading the news. If you don't like it, uh, why, why are you doing this? It's probably not improving anything in your life or making any positive difference in the world. Um, but if this is something you like doing and you, you want to continue engaging here, um, consider very deliberately selecting maybe at most half a dozen topics about which you are going to read and watch and to some extent actually study something that you're going to learn about in real detail so that when you come to read things on those topics you do have that background knowledge that allows you to evaluate the truth claims and the fact claims that you're encountering um, and this not only makes us better positioned to evaluate what we're reading um, it's also going to have a limiting effect with our time, right? If you're only reading, you're only following six things, you're not following everything. That's going to limit your time. Um, and it, it will tend to trickle out and affect a lot of our other habits because you're not going to just sort of mindlessly scroll through whatever's popping up on your phone, whatever you know, news notifications come through because that could be anything and you're not reading about just anything. You're reading about the things that you have chosen to know well. Um, and so that kind of um, you know, it sounds very simple, but that kind of topical limitation um, and, and similar constraints on our, 
our time use and our habits, I think, are, are crucial for, for sort of the average person to be engaged in, in news and consume it responsibly, but in a way that doesn't have such deleterious effects on other parts of our lives. When you think about consuming media and limiting the consumption around topics, it also mm -hmm. seems to come to the fore what outlets do you choose, mm -hmm. right? And, and that's where a lot of the breakdown in relationship occurs. If you have folks consuming one outlet and an, another consuming another outlet, and they really have a different view of the world, is it your recommendation that we attempt to read news from outlets that come from perhaps different points of view? Yeah, I mean, I think in, in general that is that is good advice. Um, I also think, though, that depending on, I don't know, depending on the relational circumstances, that by itself is not going to be sort of the cure-all that it's sometimes made out to be. You know, you'll hear people talk about if we just diversify our news feeds, we'll understand each other's perspectives. There's actually a, a fair bit of research that shows that if you plop uh, content that people disagree with into their news feed, it entrenches them further in their own beliefs because they see this thing that they hate and they react against it. And so they become more convinced of their own rightness and more opposed to that thing. Um, so it, it matters not just that we do it. I wouldn't say it's a bad idea, but how we do it. Um, and particularly thinking about relationally, I would say if you have a, you know, a close friend or family member who is of a very different political and media ilk than you. Um, trying to say, send them links from your preferred sources uh, is probably not gonna get you very far. If anything, it will probably bring you closer to like a relational rift than, than mend it. Um, and so in those cases, I would, would not advise that. I mean, think about how you feel when someone keeps texting you links that you think are from some crazy outlet. You don't like it, you don't wanna read them, you don't wanna watch that, they don't either. Um, and so in, in cases like those, I would again counsel more of a step away from it than a, you know, trying to expand it in some way, like talk about your kids or your dog instead. Don't, don't talk about these different news outlets that you yeah. disagree on. What, what characterizes trustworthy news reporting? Well, <laughs> that's a, that's a big question. Um, and I've realized recently that, uh, when I say the media, I'm mostly thinking about print media. Um, mm -hmm. And what other people are often hearing is like cable news. Um, and so those are, you know, very different media. And uh, it's hard to speak across. That's not even all of the media that we have. Um, but some broad themes that I would point to is one, it's the ideal that we should be going for is not necessarily unbiased. I think you can have a a bias and be very open about what that bias is and still have a very real concern for truth. So there are very ideological outlets, for instance. Um, Christianity Today is a great example. We have a very clear bias, if you want to use that term, right? Like it is a, a evangelical Christian outlet. We are not just trying to, to present sort of a, a blank slate view of what's going on in the world. That doesn't mean that we don't have a, a concern for truth at the same time. Um, and the same is true of, of many outlets. There are outlets that have a strong ideological perspective and yet a real concern for truth. And so, and at the same time, there are outlets that have a strong ideological perspective and no concern for truth. So the idea of bias by itself, I think is not very useful for how we're evaluating outlets. So then you say, okay, well, how do you know if, if an outlet has a concern for truth, whether they're taking a strong perspective or sort of a middle ground, trying to be more neutral. 
And a, a few, like one big tell is if they issue corrections um, and how they issue corrections. Do they only do it when a lawsuit forces them to do it? Or do they do it, you know, whenever they realize they've gotten something wrong? Do they try to make sure that the correction travels as far as the initial error? Um, that kind of sort of basic accountability. Are you, you know, transparent with how you're doing your reporting? Um, are you very clear when you've been wrong? Are you trying to conceal your your perspective or are you upfront about it and saying like, you know, this is this is my view in a way that allows your your audience to sort of parse out, okay, here's here's where their their perspective may be shaping what they're choosing to cover. Here's where they're presenting, you know, sort of unvarnished facts. Um, I think it, it's less sort of a, a, you know, you should only read outlets from this political perspective so much as how are they handling um, facts and, and truth claims as they present them to the public. Mm -hmm. Okay. I, I wonder, Bonnie, whether that connects with some, some comments you make in the book about two types of fake news. You, you talk about uh, technically accurate stories that are still unfair or misleading and then you talk about f fair or true stories that we simply don't like and you mm -hmm. say that the first of those is trickier um do, do you have any, any guidance on how to detect when that is happening yeah that's a that's a tricky one and, and this is where part of my recommendation about knowing a specific topic well comes in because if you if you are on really familiar territory um, you're more likely to have alarm bells go off when you come across a story that, you know, again, is not actually lying, but is maybe telling you half the story or framing it in a way that is misleading. Um, if it's something you don't know anything about, that'll slip right past you. But if it's something you've studied, you might catch it and be able to, you know, look up other sources and, and figure out what that other half of the story is. It is, it is more difficult though, and it is something that I think is, is very common. Um, and, and it's the way we talk about fake news, we, we tend to conflate these different things, right? Like the term is used so broadly, it's, it's used to mean those two things, you know, stories we dislike that are true, stories that are technically true, but actually misleading, and also just pure fabrications. And that makes it very difficult to understand even what it is we're we're talking about, um, let alone to identify it. Bonnie, why why do people hold on to ideas in the face of overwhelming evidence, overwhelming questions about whether those ideas are true? And let's think in terms. You have a chapter where you talk about conspiracy theories, for example. Uh, we were just talking earlier about certain. Eschatological schemes where Jesus is mm. going to come back and then he doesn't come back, but somehow the prophet doesn't lose any credibility, or the person mm -hmm. doesn't lose. Why? Why do we want to? Why do people hold on to ideas that are important to them in the face of uh, evidence that's rather seemingly rather compelling to others? I think a lot of it is less about the ideas themselves than about how they make us feel and what they, they do for us in terms of our self-conception and our relationships. So, I mean, you know, this is also true of the, the kind of um, fake news we were just talking about. A, a big indicator is if something is very inflammatory, if it makes you very sad, very angry, 
Um, if you think this is too good to be true or like it's unbelievable how bad they are, that's probably a good signal that something might be off there. And I think with, with conspiracist thinking, it's, it's very similar. Um, you know, a, a conspiracy theory uh, lets us imagine ourselves sort of as heroes, right? Like knowing about this bad thing and telling other people about this bad thing, uh, that gives us a way to feel like we are fixing a, a bad thing in a way that we, we probably really can't affect or fix that bad thing, right? Like most of the time there's a lot of evil out in the world that we can't do anything about. And so we have this idea that um, being aware of it, spreading awareness, and this goes beyond just sort of like conspiracy, uh, conspiracist mindsets and, and people who are into conspiracies, conspiracy theories, the idea that a, being aware and raising awareness is somehow that that's really doing concrete good when, when very often it's not, but we feel quite good about it. Um, and I think particularly what you see with the internet now is it allows people who are into particular conspiracy theories to find each other in a way that would have been much harder in previous eras. And so you begin to build up a community around it. You have real friends, you have a purpose together. Um, in many ways, it's, it's sort of like a pale imitation of church, right? Like you're in this grand, storyline you're in it with your your friends you're you're opposing evil you are spreading the truth i mean why wouldn't you cling to that yeah that sounds um eer eerily reminiscent of just some basic human value some or some basic human needs that it that it touches <laughs> that need the need for control the need for clarity in our lives the need to feel like we matter and we make a difference and the need to be connected i mean the way you've uh the way you've outlined that bonnie it it sounds like those um, those appeals are in fact appeals because of what they connect to that at, at an extremely visceral human level yeah absolutely I mean you hear many many people and I think the media is especially guilty of this talking about the phrase conspiracy theory is used just to automatically mean like a false thing that dumb mm -hmm. people believe um, and I am extremely not a conspiracy theorist myself, but it's not just an automatically false thing that dumb people believe. Like, there are very sympathetic and intelligible reasons why people get into this stuff um, and writing it off as, like, you know, only some lesser person could believe that is just, like, a gross misunderstanding of human nature. Hmm. Yeah, I think we, we have to also think pretty carefully about kind of the elephant in the room right now, and that is the belief that uh, the elections of 2020 were stolen, right? That that mm -hmm. idea has persisted and mm -hmm. gained credence and led to pr some behaviors that go beyond what many of us would be uh, comfortable with. Why, why mm -hmm. do those lies persist? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it goes back to these, these deeper needs because you could have someone, not me, because I have not memorized all this stuff, but you could have someone uh, more knowledgeable than I sit down and say, like, look, here are the 50 or so lawsuits that the Trump campaign lost when they were trying to to win this election. Here are all the recounts that have happened. Here are all the transparency measures that have happened. Here is all the process. You could go through all that detail. And for many people, I don't think that they would actually come away with their minds changed if they were already firmly convinced that this election was stolen, because I, I really don't think that it's... Uh, we think about conspiracy theories typically as like the X-Files model of the guy with the classified documents and he's building this intricate case. But most of the time, I don't think it works that way. It's not really about those specific facts. It's not about making, building a careful, logical case. It's about your sense of sort of how the world should be and your place in it and what 
people that you know and care about believe. Um, and so, you know, a dry run through of 50 lawsuits does not really stand up to a deep emotional conviction that Donald Trump should have won and America would be better if he had won and I would be more certain of my place in the world if he had won. Like, and all of that is probably not even like articulable in many cases, right? But again, I, I don't think it's like, you know, they looked at the lawsuits and thought, well, those legal arguments just don't hold water. Um, it's, it's about something more basic than that. Is that what you were getting at in the chapter where you talk about the new emotionalism as a part of the epistemic crisis? Yeah, it's definitely part of it um, that frequently we, we imagine ourselves as these very logical <laughs> creatures and uh, we're just not. Uh, and if we're not, our, our emotions just in reality, they are part of how we make decisions. They are part of how we think through things. And that's not a, a bad thing. It's not a negative thing to say that, you, that your emotions played into how you came to believe something, how you made a choice. Um, but it, it can be dangerous when it happens on, subconsciously, when we don't realize that emotions are in play and we think we're making just this purely reasoned decision and that's not it. When we don't understand how emotions are involved, it makes us, I think, very vulnerable to manipulation, to misunderstanding, to, yeah, holding on to things even after the evidence has been presented that what we think is not true. Yeah. I was intrigued as well, Bonnie, by your uh, your comments on the role of emotion, the role of feeling, the role of experience in the in the way we process our knowledge claims, um, and and I, and I wonder whether there's a connection between that that reality and the the parallel reality of skepticism, um, the, the you know the the disillusionment, the jadedness. A, a person, I guess. Pre I guess I shouldn't speak abstractly. We can all react in a couple of different ways to investing ourselves in, in certain beliefs and then finding out that, oh, that, that's not what I thought it was. Uh, we can either kind of double down and deny reality, deny facts that are presented to us, or we just become very jaded. And it's that skepticism part that, that I'm curious about, the skepticism that's uh, kind of a natural result or reaction to this knowledge crisis. Um, for lack of a better way to put it, what, what's really at the root of that skepticism, do you think? And, and how does that impact our capacities for knowledge and, and, and for faith, for that matter? Yeah, I think a certain amount of skepticism is healthy, right? And, and I would say that that's like one of the, the best things about sort of America's political culture, that we do have some, some healthy skepticism built in. Where it becomes sort of perverse is when it becomes very convenient, um, where we are just sort of automatically cynically rejecting anything that we don't particularly want to believe. Um, and it's often attended by almost a, a level of gullibility, but like instant trust of, of people we like and, and people making claims that we want to be true. Um, and I think a big thing that some of that is just sort of how, how people are, how we, we you know, we, we all engage in motivated reasoning and we all want to hear things that we like and not hear things that we dislike. Um, but I do think it's exacerbated by just the sheer quantity of information that is available to us now, right? So it, it used to be that if you wanted to reject some expert opinion and actually sort of mount a case against it, you might, I don't know, have to go to the library. Um, you might have to read a book. 
now you can just Google and find a thousand people who have already come to whatever conclusion you want to come to. And, and they've typed it all up online for you. And now you've done your research, quote unquote, and have your evidence, quote unquote. And you can set yourself up as an alternative authority. Um, and so, I mean, this is a sense in which I think some of the conversation in where we focus on uh, fake news or misinformation or disinformation, something that is out there, a problem that is out there and separate from us, um, is a little bit misguided because while it's true that that volume of information really does matter and does make a difference, um, the, the problem is more in us and how we're encountering and using and misusing that information. Um, there was another journalist, I, I want to say I quoted in the book, who said the problem is not the belief, but the believers, which is an awkward turn of phrase for Christian context. So I would say not yeah. the knowledge, but the knowers. Um, that it's, it's, it's not just, like the information is out there, and I don't think absent like nuclear apocalypse, I don't think we're going to stop having the internet and this sheer quantity of information available to us. So then the question becomes, we can't change that, but we can change how we are as we're encountering and, and processing and believing or rejecting it. I, I appreciated the way you, you use the COVID experience to talk about skepticism toward expertise. And you quote that, mm -hmm. that uh, book, The Death yeah. of Expertise. Yeah, Tom Nichols. Tom Nichols' book. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, the truth is there was a lot of skepticism toward medical science even before COVID, certainly around mm -hmm. the question of vaccines. And, you know, I think that the death of expertise for those of us in the academy uh, or skepticism toward expertise for those of us in academia is a very serious challenge for us, right? Mm -hmm. And it has been a part of the Christian experience as well, where you have hundreds, if not thousands of churches where there isn't really any value placed upon doing the kind of research you talked about proceeding through academia. In fact, where I grew up, if you had a degree, you were considered likely not to be depending on the Holy Spirit, right? Just depending mm -hmm. on your mind. So how do we rebuild trust in something like academia, some, something where there is a skepticism toward expertise and even a, more of a sense of trust toward some of the institutions where this kind of research is either worked out or is um, made policy or brought into our lives? Uh, I don't know that I have a super easy answer, especially if we're, uh, I mean, Mark Knoll wrote The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind 30 years ago, right? And I, right. I read it for the first time while, while writing this book and it was like, oh, nothing's changed. <laughs> <laughs> this is all still too relevant. <laughs> um, so yeah, it, it's a it's a difficult thing. The, the, the two things that are sort of my go-to here is one, to point out that, that that kind of academic expertise, or you could say elite expertise, is not the only kind of expertise, and that most of us have no problem trusting other more familiar kinds of expertise all the time. Um, you know, you, you are trusting expertise every time you call an electrician, every time you drive across a bridge. We are all trusting expertise that we have no capacity to evaluate on a daily basis. You know, I, I have no engineering knowledge. I can't tell if that bridge is safe. A lot of the bridges here in Pittsburgh look extremely rusty. I still drive on them. <laughs> so far, I'm okay. You And you have to just sort of, you have to trust that expertise to live in the society that we have. 
Um, and so once you, you recognize that actually, as much as you may think of yourself as a skeptic, you do trust a lot of experts all the time and mm, experts that you can't evaluate, point. then yeah. I think that can be useful for thinking, okay, well, maybe some of these, these more academic or, or quote-unquote elite experts, maybe, maybe there's some reason to give them some credence as well. But I also think, and I, and I wrote about this in the, that chapter, I also think, you know, experts behaving themselves is a big part of it and uh, dealing with, with non-experts in a trustworthy manner, um, both in terms of, you know, being open about their failings, admitting their own wrongs, um, being transparent when their own knowledge is growing and changing, um, and also, you know, trusting trusting the public, treating people like adults, not telling them, and this was a, a big thing during the pandemic, not telling people noble lies, not, not sort of uh, withholding information because you don't think the public can handle it. And it's true. I mean, sometimes the public probably can't handle it, but I don't think that, uh, I think we end up in, in somewhere worse when we go with dishonesty that you, you because especially now, people will find out that they've been lied to and they will find out in public and they will see no reason to trust you ever again. And so as much as there are risks of telling the truth, sometimes the, the risks of telling lies are, are worse. That's really a good word. I remember in my doctoral program, my uh, primary professor said, true scholars have more questions than answers. And hmm. what he, he was basically saying is every time you learn something, it should spawn a lot more questions about both the validity of what you've learned as well as the meaning of it in different arenas. You talk about virtues at the end of the book that are necessary for us in this arena of knowing and evaluating. What do you think are the primary virtues we need to cultivate and practice in order to consume information well and engage with others around uh, truthful ideas? Yeah, well, the, the three that I talk about, um, and these were not original to me, it's um, from a, a scholar formerly at Wheaton, uh, I believe his last name is Wood, but the three that, that he highlights and that I talk about as well are uh, studiousness, intellectual honesty, and uh, wisdom. And in that order, specifically, because that sort of follows the, the pattern of studiousness is about how we are inquiring or, or, and finding knowledge. Uh, intellectual honesty is about how we engage it once we've found it. And then wisdom is how we put it into practice. Um, and, you know, studiousness in particular always makes me chuckle a little because it sounds like, I don't know, it sounds like something you, you tell like a high school student, like you need to be studious. Um, but it's, it's quite a serious and real thing and, and a, a way that we should be applying ourselves if, if we are seeking to, to, to find knowledge and evaluate truth claims in a given arena. Um, and it the, the media environment in which we live, the information environment we have, makes it very easy to skip all of that because it all takes time. Um, it takes a certain deliberation and slowness and willingness to focus on one thing and give it a fair shake um, and you know follow the inquiry where it leads. And everything in our media environment militates against that. Like we have not, we do not live in a world that is conducive to that anymore. Um, I don't know that there was ever very many people who lived in a world that was conducive to it, but, but we don't. Uh, and so it does require deliberate cultivation, deliberate um, reshaping of our habits to create uh, a space for those virtues to develop. Some of our listeners are pastors or mentors or engaged in leading others in their walk of faith. 
what kind of advice would you give them as they try to help their friends and their mentees and their church members navigate this volatile world of truth and trust and information? Hmm. I, I do, do not, uh, I never envy pastors, I don't think, but especially in this context. Um, I think a, the, the biggest advice that I go to is to take something of an, an indirect approach. So again, not typically, it's not typically going to be sort of arguing people out of their bad ideas. It's not typically going to be bombarding them with links to better media they can consume instead of the garbage that they're reading right now, right? Because you have better taste than they do. Um, they're probably going to find that pretty condescending and not listen to you. And that really gets at the heart of it, which is that I think there has to be a, a certain foundation of relationship there, which is built on other things, you know, sort of ordinary things and also things of faith that make you a person worth listening to um, and a, a voice that when the right opportunity comes can actually cut through the noise with which we've all surrounded ourselves. And so uh, more than... You know, not that there will never be a place for addressing this head on, because I think sometimes there, there will and should be. But more often, I think you're going to do much better with, I don't know, like having someone over for dinner, having going on a walk, talking about things that have nothing to do with any of this um, to establish that basis of trust, because it is significantly about about who we trust. Um, and then once that happens, once that is in place, then maybe and it, it may not come quickly you know I'm, I'm reminded of that that verse about one plants and another waters but God gives the growth you you may not actually be the one who ever sees uh, someone in your life make progress in this area right like they may move and you may never know about it um, but maybe the the day will come where you will have a, a relationship built where they they trust you and, and you trust them right because this can't just be sort of a, a paternalistic I'm gonna fix you sort of plot um, where where the it, it, the opportunity comes to say, you know, are, are these things that you're you're getting into the way you're consuming media? What kind of fruit is that producing in your life? Um, that was a, a question that a, a pastor I spoke with said that that he had had found at the, asked at the right time. What kind of fruit is this producing in your life? Um, could really make people think. And because the 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 answer very often, um, as we know from our own lives is anger and frustration and uh you know sadness and, and worry and fear and i think in the right place um, and in the right relational context people can recognize that and then perhaps have a a desire of their own to reevaluate how they're how they're engaging here as opposed to having you sort of swoop in and try to fix it for them i really appreciated that when you mentioned that at the toward the end of your book as, as a way of wrapping or wrapping this back around the, uh, the the fruits of the spirit, as Paul talked about in Galatians, is do do the ways we consume and and validate and and act upon and maybe argue about or get spun up about things we think we know are those leading to the the fruit of the spirit? I appreciate you uh, putting and putting a bow on it with that. That's a, a, a fitting word. Bonnie, thank you very much for spending time with us. We appreciate uh, this time, your your comments, your insights, and appreciate the work you've done in the book and want to highly, highly commend your work to our listeners. The book is Untrustworthy, uh, 2022 publication by Brazos Press. 
and we we hope this gets out into lots of hands and into lots of minds and into lots of communities um thank you for a difference yeah thank you for spending time with us friends we're grateful that you've chosen to spend some time with us if you get the chance please leave us a rating or review wherever you listen to podcasts and please send any questions or comments to us at our email address which is podcast at denverseminary.edu Our website, denverseminary.edu, has plenty of other resources you can explore, such as events, degree programs, and also more episodes of Engage 360, including full episode transcripts. We're really grateful for your interest, for your support, and for your prayers. Until next time, may the Lord bless you. Take care, friends.